that I like to say is that Oregon didn't get here overnight, right? It wasn't that we magically woke up and we were one of the most um, pro-sexual reproductive healthcare, expanding access to abortion, protecting it in our state law. Um, we did not codify the right to abortion in our state until 2017. So I think that's always interesting. We were one of the first states to not make it illegal um, before the Roe decision, but we did not codify that right in state law until 2017 with the passage of the Reproductive Health Equity Act and with champions like um, Speaker Kotek and Governor Brown and, um, you know, all sorts of, and all our like champions in the Senate in the House. But we worked really hard to be able to elect those pro-sexual and reproductive health care champions. One of the biggest lessons I think we all need to learn is that state elections matter a lot. And with a court that comprised with individuals that it has now, um, with those being lifetime appointments, with a number of those justices being very young, it's gonna matter more than ever that we're working hard and not being complacent to make sure that we're voting up and down the ballot for people who are going to protect our fundamental rights and freedoms and expand access to healthcare. Because in the last four or five years has taught us anything, it is not to take anything for granted um, and not to feel like you are just safe in your little like corner of the world because no man is an island and we should care about what's happening in Texas and we should care about what's happening in Mississippi and we should be thinking about how Oregon can be a leader and a beacon for folks who need to get care and might need to travel to our state to do so. Roe has always been the floor, not the ceiling. We know that it has not been enough. It's still not enough. That legal right to abortion is still not enough for people who live here in Oregon and can't access the care they need because of distance or expense. Um, and so we have to be ever vigilant to make sure that our state is able to preserve access to healthcare, access to fundamental freedom, um, and we can't ever take it for granted. You're listening to KBOO Evening News. We've been hearing from Oregon reproductive justice organizations about barriers to abortion access here in Oregon and the impact of Idaho's restrictive laws for Eastern Oregonians. Music in this segment was Ragtime by Fearless, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. I'm Claire Rochado. Tune in tomorrow at 5 p.m. to hear the next episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening. You are listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. On our show today, we'll examine the history of accessibility and architectural design and how disability rights activists fought for decades for their rights. Author Bess Williamson will discuss her book, Accessible America, A History of Disability and Design. Then we'll speak with investigative reporter Tina Vasquez of Rewire.News about her bombshell report on how pregnant migrants in U.S. Marshal Service custody face horrific abuse, shackling, and separation from their newborns. That's coming up in just a moment. 
KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. A young mother in New York City died in a city subway in late January. 22-year-old Malaysia Goodson of Stamford, Connecticut, was navigating New York City's notoriously inaccessible subway system with her one-year-old child in a stroller while on the subway steps. She fell down the flight of steps, and while the child miraculously survived, Ms. Goodson did not. Her tragic death has raised the ire of other parents who know intimately the dangers of trying to take the subway with their child in a stroller, and also of disability activists and disabled New Yorkers who for years have fought for a more accessible system of public transportation. We tend to take for granted those design features that are built into structures and city infrastructure that we use on a daily basis, such as street curb ramps or elevators, automatic door openers and wide doorways. But those design features were not simply dreamt up by forward-thinking city planners and architects on their own. They were the results of hard-won victories by disability rights activists over years. My guest is Bess Williamson. She is an assistant professor of art history, theory, and criticism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she's the author of the new book, Accessible America, A History of Disability and Design. Welcome to the program, Bess. Thanks, Sonali. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So the the story of Malaysia Goodson um, just so tragically illustrates these design features that um, you know that that we tend to take for granted, and that when they are missing, we know so um, intimately and so you know with such difficulty that uh, that we need them. Did this story for you highlight exactly what it is that that you were trying to show in your book? Um, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a horrifying story for anybody, but especially if you've used the New York subway and you're kind of aware of what an intense physical experience it is, right? The kind of the rush of crowds and how many people are like making their way through that subway system kind of making do like, you know, the advanced skills that mothers use, parents use to like get their strollers down, um, down the stairs as well as people, you know, with luggage or carts or whatever. Um, and that this is in a lot of ways sort of understood as like the normal environment um, until these horrible things happen. But yes, over um, about a half of a century, right, activists have been calling and indeed the federal law has required that the, that the subway system become accessible. Mm -hmm. And um, the compromises are evident when not every station, you know, includes an elevator, the elevators are poorly maintained or unsafe. Um, and these kinds of issues um, bring that to attention. And a number of people have been saying, you know, these are issues that disabled activists have been bringing up for decades, you know, Right. Why hasn't it been acted on until now? So uh, in a way to, to sort of summarize um, the results of the work that disability rights activists have done for decades is something that we all benefit from whether or not we live with disabilities, right? Yes, I mean, you know, there's no amazing architecture that truly serves everybody, right. of course. But I think certainly the idea which was articulated as early as the 1970s and 1980s by disability rights activists and architects of the idea of what we call universal design, right? That what we call accessible or adaptive technologies for disabled people, um, that category itself is a bit of a falsehood, right? What we consider to be assistive as opposed to what we consider to be the normal environment, um, you know, changes and fluctuates. And in particular, that when it comes to architecture, when we insert these features, especially when they're designed from the get-go, they tend to open up possibilities for other populations. So, you know, the the, the wheelchair ramp is, a, is an obvious one, right, that smooths out a surface for a wide range of populations. Um, uh, the, the elevator as well, right, in terms of 
um, lowering the sort of threshold that it requires for anybody to use these spaces. So uh, most Americans are familiar with the, uh, at least the name, the Americans for Disabilities Act, ADA. We, you know, have heard of buildings needing to become ADA compliant, but uh, you write in your book that um, that there there's a greater history that of course went into um, that and that led up to that particular um, law. There's the Architectural Barriers Act of 1968, which in the slew of sort of civil rights acts that were signed into law during those years, we often don't think about that particular act. But then even going before that, um, when did it become in the history of this country, the United States, when did it become apparent to our political leaders that the issue of disability rights uh, and the rights of the disabled was a critical civil rights issue. You go back in your book to um, all the way to the time when World War II veterans were coming back with serious injuries. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think really what you see is a coming together of a variety of um, factors, but especially I think a big cultural change in the way that Americans and really people worldwide viewed disability occurred in that mid 20th century moment because of the end of World War II, you know, a highly mechanized war that produced a lot of severe injuries, but also one that, you know, advanced medicine had, um, you know, improved the survival rate of rather significant injury. Um, but then also the polio epidemic that sort of had its peak in the 1940s and 1950s, in which, um, you know, so two populations, so the disabled veteran and um, people with polio, were, were both primarily as, children, right? But also, but also some well, adults. especially yes, yes, especially in the spotlight, were often children, right? Seen as sympathetic and deserving of everything that the society had to offer, right? And so there's a kind of direct connection between these events and the shifting sense that something should be done. That said, as you mentioned, there's sort of these early efforts. But what really puts kind of the fuel behind these efforts, so it makes them real and um, enforceable, is the language of civil rights. So there's this notion, and literally, you know, a, the president's a presidential committee wrote in the 1960s, there will be no objection to these to these measures, right? They can help everyone. Like, who would object to this? But this has actually not been the case, right? There's been quite a lot of objection to the notion of building access, and I think it's really. Um, the language of civil rights, which was, you know, again, sort of reaching its uh, a sort of apex in the 1960s, that uh, um, that gave a language to this concern, that it was more than just helping, you know, the poor handicapped, but instead it was a civil right that needed to be protected, even when that was difficult or well, challenging. Going back before that, though, uh, we have had a disabled president. Um, uh, how did the presidency of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR as he's known, um, have an impact, if any, uh, on this notion that the, 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 the this is an issue of civil rights, or you know, I mean, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, of course, right? So um, FDR is a, is a fascinating case, right? Um, uh, had a, a sort of polio-like disease in, um, in the 1930s and then, uh, you know, was, was president. And he, he used a variety of resources that we would now consider accessible design, right? There was a special ramp that went down to the, the floor of Congress for him. There's a wheelchair-accessible bathroom, actually, that still exists in the, in the White House. Um, so, so the White yeah. House? was retrofitted with design elements for slightly, him? Slightly, slightly. Yeah, well, we think of it as, I, I think of it as sort of difficult accessibility. Mm -hmm. um, he, he designed his own house back in his um, hometown in, in Hyde Park, New York, uh, a little cottage that has like no no thresholds and has lower windows so you can see out the window and so on but these were really personal resources right he was a he was a wealthy man he was he owned his own rehabilitation center in Georgia so he sort of, you know, he and the government both fueled this while he was president, but once he was gone, you know, those things disappeared. So there's a real sense in um, the earlier 20th century, of course, disability has always existed, right, through human history, but it's more this issue that's a private concern. Like, it's up to you and your family to fix this issue, um, Other, you know, otherwise you can't participate. And the sense that sort of to be an American is to like walk by yourself, stand up, you know, stand for yourself as an individual rather than to rely on others. So there's a lot of kind of secrecy um, involved in this as well. And shame. And, yes, I mean, I think to some extent, I mean, you know, we think of, you know, the idea that a person is like, 
you know, cursed or shamed, you know, as being sort of pre, you know. Yeah, and, and when I say shame, I mean societal shame, not individual shame about themselves. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a sense of kind of hiding away of a taboo. I mean, right, in some ways, the, the question of accessibility is who is okay to be seen in public, right? Mm -hmm. um, to be really included. And sometimes that means, you know, a real challenge to the aesthetic kind of claims that we have, for example, that, you know, a grand building is one that has a beautiful staircase outside of it. So I think there is a sort of sense of of invisibility around disability. Um, but I think, you know, this was mitigated to some extent by the figure of like the disabled veteran or children with polio, you know, like who could deny the right of a child with polio, especially a sort of white middle-class child, you know, mm -hmm. seen as, as you know, promising. And so there's a lot of these kind of overtones of citizenship, right, of sort of inclusion um, of certain populations so that there's a kind of gradual move toward um, a public, a truly public notion of access. Hmm. So uh, I'm guessing that the early opposition to universal design was the basis of cost as well. Um, you know, today we have a discussion or a debate in this country about who has the right to health care, Medicare for all. Um, is uh, the, the constant argument we're hearing against that is oh, it would just cost too much. Did you hear those arguments as well in terms of making buildings and infrastructure accessible? Absolutely, right. So from the very beginning, when the um, Federal Architectural Barriers Act comes in, there's this like concern, you know, this is going to be inconvenient, this is going to be um, costly, and it's often presented as a kind of an economic uh, or sort of a statistical argument, you know, like, there's only such a, you know, small percentage of people who need this. So it's not worth the, the price. Um, or even there's this kind of, uh, you know, nobody, like we've never had a disabled employee or a disabled student, so we ne don't need to build ramps, you know, when of course, I think we can recognize there's no, there weren't disabled students at many colleges because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't um, be there or they knew they couldn't be there. So it's a so circular a logic. Yes. Um, absolutely, a kind of circular logic. But I, I see, especially um, in the 1970s and 1980s, when public transportation becomes a, a key site of debate around access, the argument about cost comes up in particular. And the idea that um, accessibility is a kind of a luxury that disabled people are asking for, as if they're being asked to be sort of, you know, shuttled from door to door. Um, you know, ironically, actually, disabled people were asking to take the same public transportation as everyone, right? Um, but there's this kind of argument, like everyone else is suffering because they, you know, their um, the subway is closed for renovations because of this special interest, you know? So this, this contrast is really drawn, I think, especially around public transportation, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think of as the true kind of democratic transportation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the people you see on the bus are the people, you know, that, that um, you know, are often the most poor, people who are carrying stuff, people who don't have other options. And this is the site where there's often the most resistance. You know, uh, this, the mayor of New York City says, this is a ridiculous um, idea to make the subway accessible. Ed Koch says, you know, we're gonna, um, there'll be 500 people the first day using a wheelchair on the subway and afterwards maybe one. So you're saying this is a ridiculous um, kind of uh, asking too much. Um, sort of notion. When in fact, um, of course, uh, activists were simply asking for a uh, way in which they could be more independent, right, rather than special treatment. Um, and, and now we know after many years of uh, society benefiting from that design that, that we all do benefit. I mean, whether or not one needs a wheelchair, um, there have been many, many of us who have needed to wheel a large suitcase into an airport or a subway station and have been able to take advantage of those hard fought for design elements. And we're all, by the way, of course, eventually, if we live long enough, we'll age. And as we age, it becomes um, harder and harder to uh, deal with infrastructure that is not accessible. So let's go back a little bit in history again. We started to talk briefly about the way in which the language of the civil rights movement became a really important tool. Tell us, paint a picture for us of how the disability rights movement, um, especially in the 60s, came about 
And what its links were to the civil rights movement? Was it a sort of separate movement that used the language and the momentum of the civil rights movement for racial justice, or were they, were they more intertwined? Um, there certainly is an intertwining. Um, that said, you know, the, the disability rights movement in many ways adopted some of the language of the civil rights movement um, in terms of talking about segregation. There's a kind of famous photograph of a protest where someone's hold a wheelchair user is holding a sign that says, I can't even get to the back of the bus, mm. which I think today Interesting. we might call into question somewhat. Uh, many of the leaders of the disability rights movement were sort of white, educated, um, particularly wheelchair users, many of them the grown-up children with polio. Um, from sort of the 1950s. So you have a particular movement, a kind of epicenter of the disability rights movement in Berkeley, California. So you can imagine Berkeley in the 60s, right? The, you know, a massive protest happening all the time. And there's a group of disabled students, uh, particularly sort of wheelchair users who were living in a special dorm at the top floor of the campus hospital. And they, you know, started as real sort of individual strivers. They had done a lot to get there, but they start fairly quickly to kind of get connected with the politics of the moment and and understand their own situation, not only in terms of their own individual achievement, but sort of what's happening. And so you see sort of more of the discussion of, you know, it's not just about us, but it's about others outside. We're particularly concerned about people who are institutionalized. And so there's a little bit of a sense of, you know, an overall identity. Um, and there in Berkeley, there's a number of really significant moments, um, including the founding of like a grassroots social service agency, rather than, you know, having the government decide, you know, your benefits or what classes you can take or where you can live or something to have a sense of self-determination there, but um, particularly in terms of the city plan. So the the um, students or, or some of them were sort of community members in Berkeley, um, they agitated for the first wheelchair accessible kind of district. So rather than just an individual building or a campus, they um, pressured the city to build a, a chain of about 100 wheelchair ramps all in sort of one swoop in the early 1970s. And even more significantly than that, they um, got written into the city's law that for any new developments related to access, um, disabled communities needed to be consulted. So this is a big design intervention itself, right? Calling not only for like any specific architectural item, like a ramp in this building, right? But saying we need to be asked for this planning, sort of, you know, inserting themselves into yeah. the official process for design. And I see that as very akin to other civil rights notions of like seizing the means of, of control in this moment. So how did uh, the Architectural Barriers Act of 1968 uh, on a federal level then encompass or at least begin to encompass some of those demands that activists were making for more accessibility in, you know, in, in, in many arenas of life? So there's actually kind of two important federal acts. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you getting like really wonky on the uh, legislation, legislative history here. So there's the Architectural Barriers Act of 1968, which requires that all government buildings incorporate a kind of minimal code. The sort of standard of the time was very basic, but you know wheelchair ramps, accessible bathrooms, parking. So it mainly focused around wheelchair access. Very little is actually done. There's no enforcement. So yeah. I, four years later, the government found that like 10% of buildings. So the, you have this law, but it doesn't really push into action. But interestingly, under President Nixon, actually, the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, which was like a government act to fund you know, rehabilitation programs, has a tiny clause in it called Section 504. And anyone watching who has a child who receives disability services will recognize Section 504 is like the name of their service. But the Section 504 uses civil rights language. It says no one can be discriminated against in government services on the basis of quote unquote handicap. And historians have found that people didn't even really necessarily know what that meant as they wrote it or what the implications of that would be. But for year for uh, the decade that follows their ongoing arguments about, well, what does that mean to to not discriminate? Does that mean that, you know, uh, just s nobody is actively telling you you can't get on the bus or does the bus need to be accessible? So then, sorry, just to, you know, then fast forward to 1977, really nothing has been done once again about that act. 
And there are nationwide protests by the disability community, including a month-long occupation of the federal building in San Francisco. And that's really what like pushes for um, specific and enforceable legislation. So you can see it takes a long time and, and a, a lot of discussion about, you know, okay, we have this principle, but what does this actually mean in action um, to bring this about? And then in 1990 is the Americans for Disabilities Act, the ADA. Um, and, and I imagine that the ADA also, of course, required a significant amount of effort into it and then a significant amount of enforcement of it, right? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I basically think that, you know, the 1968 and act and the 1973 act are both about government services so you know and the government is involved in a lot of things right college teach college education you know uh public transportation um not to mention just all the offices and services the post office and so on but the 1990 act covers all aspects of um, what we call public accommodation so private businesses as well um, and a significant sort of uh, increase of employment um uh, protection so you know you have the public bus in the 1980s and then after the ADA you have the Greyhound bus right so it's like when private entities also have to uh, conform to this law after 1990 that said it also had its its enforcement issues very few lawsuits still have been um, really successful under the ADA it's very difficult it uh, to win ADA lawsuits and um, an ADA uh, my mind is not remembering right now, but the, there's a second ADA sort of uh, reinforcement act in 2008. So, it, you know, these laws have to be constantly kind of tailored and, and reinforced um, because they get they tend to get sort of chipped away um, by the variety of forces. I mean, this is really true for all civil rights protections. There's There needs to be a kind of constant reshuffling and conversation about who is protected. So, uh, Bess, you are at the Art Institute of Chicago. Let's spend the last few minutes talking specifically about design because, you know, we, we've had, uh, predictably, you have the opposition to these demands made by, legitimate demands made by disability rights activists that it would, uh, it's an inconvenience to make things accessible. Uh, but how has design evolved to take those requirements that we need to make life easier for so many Americans and turned that into an aesthetic that is part of a broader cultural shift in the country. Well, there's a, there, it's so fascinating, right? Because I think the law has, you know, we can, we can critique the law and note um, the, the many ways in which there's been sort of resistance and backlash, but nonetheless, we have, you know, a federal law that gives a name to this realm of design and makes it a kind of standard set of a standard knowledge that all architects must must know and i think that that does a lot but then there's you know i think in the in the recent decades there've been a lot of discussion about sort of beyond ramps like what is there what are what other forms of accessibility if we see the ada compliance as kind of a baseline as a very minimum what else is there and there's there's been a lot of really great work recently i think especially around you know sort of environmental uh experience that may not be resolvable through a ramp but particularly with the attention to you know sort of neurodiversity and sensory um, awareness that comes with um, awareness of autism spectrum disorders and so on that there's been more of a sense of you know spatial use and um, environment in addition to you know these sort of bare minimums of like the width of a doorway and so on um, the recent change that I'm seeing which I'm really excited about is more and more uh, self-identified disabled people entering into design professions I mean this is a real rarity design architecture training programs are notoriously very rigorous and demanding and you know just in terms of like staying up all night and being sort of bullied by your professors and so on and I see a, a slight but a cultural change toward considering you know who who does that culture not include um, and that might be people who identify as disabled right who have chronic illnesses or have mobility issues or have sensory differences or just learning differences so there have been a number of organized efforts to sort of increase the presence of disabled people as designers right not being designed for but actually participating and um, creating work on their own which i think i think that will make a huge um 
sort of sea change in design culture. Right. Um, I mean, it's a much more empowering uh, dynamic. <laughs> right. Instead of getting away from the idea that there's a kind of a norm and then you add on access, sure. right? If we destroy the idea of a norm, we may start really with something new. Right. Yeah. If you if, if that just becomes part of a an, an underlying aesthetic that informs all design, it uh, makes uh, makes things so much more different. And and these are life and death issues, as that story of Malaysia Goodson that we uh, started our conversation with illustrates. I mean, she's just unfortunately the latest example, um, and there have been so many others. Um, and I'm finally uh, wondering also if you think that the along with this long history of struggle for accessible design, um, hand in hand with that, has there gone a cultural shift in how disabled Americans are viewed both by themselves and by the nation, a cultural shift. We used to use this term handicapped, which we don't anymore. Um, now more and more people are saying, um, you know, using different terms um, and, and this idea of being an ableist is, is, is something that, uh, you know, in, in discriminating against people living with disabilities. Um, we used to say confined to a wheelchair. Now we say wheelchair users. Is that, has that cultural shift gone hand in hand with the shift on design? Yes, I, I think so. You know, although there are moments when, you know, there's a kind of a negative response, right? Like the, this is just a, a code. Right, rather than a truly a sort of culture and identity issue, um, but I think overall, I mean, as you mentioned, I think there's an overall increasing like kind of cultural literacy around disability, right? That can go hand in hand and alongside our other kind of cultural awareness of difference and contribution in terms of diversity, right? That um, disability is not a kind of separate tragic experience, but a core experience of being human. Right, and that's represented in all cultural groups, you know, like sexual orientation kind of cuts across, you know, class and race and culture. And right, and so to recognize that disability itself is a producer of culture, right? It's it's not just a sort of a, you know, seen as a kind of negative experience, but that in fact many of the great artworks and design works that we see come out of positions of, you know, of disability, right? Of people sort of inventing and discovering alternative ways of making and doing things because it doesn't work for them. Um, so those are, are areas that I think are really promising from a cultural, you know, it's really understanding disability as a as a component of diversity. Well, that's a great note to end on. Bess, thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck to you with the book. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bess Williamson is an assistant professor of art history, theory, and criticism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. We've been discussing her new book, Accessible America, a history of disability and design. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The Washington Post has reported that immigrant minors are being held in detention longer than is legally allowed. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, together with the ACLU of Louisiana, have launched a lawsuit over the prolonged detention of hundreds of asylum seekers. 
as the Trump administration continues to ramp up its attacks on migrants in custody, we take a look today at a new series of investigative reports that shines a light on the horrific cruelty that pregnant women minors in particular are facing under the Trump administration. Immigration reporter Tina Vasquez of Rewire.News has found that some women in the custody of the U.S. Marshals Service are shackled while giving birth and even separated from their newborns. Pregnant women are also being criminalized just for seeking asylum. Tina Vasquez previously was a freelance writer and editor with almost 10 years of experience focusing on intersectional feminism, racial justice, and immigration. She's a former associate editor at Black Girl Dangerous. She's contributed to The Guardian, Truthout, Jezebel, Bitch Magazine, and Al Jazeera. Welcome to the program, Tina. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So this particular series of reports that you did for Rewire.News, three of them so far, um, focus, I understand, on um, the medical um, conditions or the medical treatment that pregnant women receive when they're in the custody of a very specific federal agency. So we've all heard about Border Patrol and, and ICE, but we don't hear very much about the oldest U.S. federal agency that you write about, the U.S. Marshal Service. Why, first of all, is this Marshal Service even in charge of immigrants? And is this a new thing to the Trump administration? Um, what's really interesting is that when I began this reporting, I didn't know that I was writing about U.S. Marshals. Hmm. Um, we speak to a doctor in the piece. Um, she's featured in all three pieces. Her name is Dr. Shelley, and she's an OBGYN in the Western District of Texas. And when I first connected with her, the agency that she was naming um, in terms of shackling, in terms of providing negligent prenatal and postpartum care, um, even in terms of shackling while women are giving birth, she kept referring it to it as ICE. And so I thought I was investigating ICE, but as I started to delve deeper into it and ask more questions and sort of trying to cross-reference different stories, it became very clear, especially thanks to the source in the piece, Taylor Levy, who works at Annunciation House, that the agency that we were talking about was U.S. Marshal Service. So they're a federal law enforcement agency, and their role in all of this, they have a very large role in Texas in particular for carrying out the zero tolerance policy, which is that they help detain asylum seekers and other migrants being prosecuted under zero tolerance. They're responsible for transporting them. Um, they don't run any of their own prisons and detention centers. Rather, they contract with different facilities to detain immigrants under zero tolerance. So are they effectively doing the similar type of work that Border Patrol is, or does Border Patrol turn people over to them? So the, the way that it's working under zero tolerance is that Border Patrol and Customs and Border Protection apprehends migrants in the borderlands. They then get transferred to marshal. They, they, once they're being prosecuted by the Department of Justice, they are transferred to the custody of U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals oversees their imprisonment, essentially, and their transportation to court hearings and that kind of thing. So they're in their custody, but they're not in U.S. Marshals' uh, facilities, which is what makes this more complicated because it's, it's a lot of agencies working together in very complicated ways, and it depends on where you are in the country, how this plays out, whether or not you are prosecuted, whether or not you come through a port of entry or don't. Um, so you could be within... You know, in Texas, we I spoke to women who were in three different or four different agencies' custody over the span of just a few days. Hmm. And of course, when you have critical or urgent health needs, such as being heavily pregnant and ready to give birth, uh, and you're being passed around from one agency to another, those healthcare needs, I imagine, fall through the cracks. Yes. That's one of the biggest problems, and that's, um, you know, even the doctor that I spoke to is what she was trying to sort out. Is this an issue of U.S. Marshals simply not caring and not bringing pregnant people in when they need to access care? Or is there some sort of lag because U.S. Marshals has to wait until there is permission granted to bring pregnant people in for prenatal care? So it could be either of those things or it could be both of those things. Um, but we know is that there are huge lapses in care that are really, really harming pregnant asylum seekers in Marshall's custody. So let's specifically talk about what you found from Dr. Shelley, which I understand this is a, a pseudonym. She's a she's an anonymous source in one specific facility that uh, the U.S. Marshall Service has contracted to. Yes. So Dr. Shelley told me that women are being shackled when they're accessing 
prenatal care, which is very harmful. They could fall at any time. It can cause very serious problems with their pregnancies. Um, they're shackled. Sometimes during giving, while giving birth, she has stopped it numerous times, but there are other doctors who maybe don't feel comfortable doing that or who don't know that they can stop shackling while it's in process. So um, a pregnant woman giving birth to a baby has what her, her wrists or ankles shackled to, to the bed she's laying on? Yes, yes. And when she's accessing prenatal care, that could mean, it often means shackling around the belly, shackling at the wrist, and sometimes shackling at the feet. And, and you can, it's very clear how that is especially a problem um, with a pregnant person. And so, I mean, it increases the risk of falling. Um, it could do harm to the fetus. There are lots of problems with it. Um, and then it's always happening, it seems, after a person gives birth. So during postpartum care, they're being shackled certainly across the board. So is the shackling during childbirth a standard, a practice that is only stopped if the doctor decides to uh, demand that, that the shackles be removed? It's sort of across the board a default pro uh, procedure? I mean, so what Marshall's told me is that it only happens during extraordinary circumstances. But what Dr. Shelley told me is that um, they attempt it pretty regularly. And unless, yes, unless the doctor steps in and says, you can't do this, this is harmful, um, this endangers the health and well-being of, of the person giving birth, unless the doctor does that, then U.S. Marshals, there's nothing to stop U.S. Marshals from shackling pregnant asylum seekers. What about after birth? Um, aside from the condition of being shackled during postpartum care, you also write about how infants, newborns are being separated from their mothers. So what happens is, um, and what I learned actually about ICE is that where I'm writing about, so I'm writing about instances in the Western District of Texas and instances in El Paso. So ICE in that area is actually pretty good about once a pregnant person is in their care, their custody, they release them. That's not happening with marshals for a couple of reasons. Marshals doesn't have the same kind of discretion that ICE does, so marshals can't simply choose to release a person. And so what happens is after a person gives birth in U.S. Marshals custody, they're allowed to remain at the hospital for 48 or 72 hours. And if they do not have a family member in the United States with legal status who can or who is willing to take their baby, then the child gets funneled into child welfare agencies. Um, in Texas, that's Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. And then the woman goes back to U.S. Marshals custody. And to my understanding, and based on what I've learned in reporting, there is no one really keeping her in the loop about where her newborn goes, how she can stay in communication with her newborn, um, what happens when she's released. And so what seems to be happening a lot is after she gives birth, then marshals can, if marshals, if it's decided that this woman is to be released, marshals can't release her. They have to transfer her to ICE custody. And so then ICE can release her. So that's a two or three day window after she gives birth between then and being released. And so if she can find her way to an advocacy organization who can sort of steer her in the direction of her newborn, then those reunifications can happen that way. But we do not know what happens to women who are released from custody, who are given no guidance, you know, who often don't speak English, like whether or not they ever find their newborns, we don't, we don't know. Why are newborns being separated in the first place? You're saying that just because a woman might land up in the custody of U.S. Marshals as opposed to ICE, um, she remains in custody and then after she's given birth, her baby can't remain with her and the baby is handed off either to a legal resident relative or enters a child welfare system and maybe what fostered and adopted by, by some other family. I mean, that is beyond cruel. It is. And, and the sort of determining factor is um, what's important to note is that these are women that are being prosecuted under the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy. So I think a lot of people thought that once the administration purported to end the family separation policy, that was the end of zero tolerance, and it isn't. So essentially, if you attempt to enter the United States without authorization, CBP can choose to prosecute you. And for whatever reason, they are choosing to prosecute pregnant migrants. And, and when so you say once, choosing to, is it disproportionately choosing to prosecute them? It's hard to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I filed a number of FOIAs. We don't know why. It seems very 
uh, it's sort of up to happenstance. They they choose to prosecute some people and not others, but there have been multiple instances that we can verify where they've chosen to prosecute pregnant migrants. And so once that process begins, you're a criminal in the eyes of the United States. So that's why you are in Marshall's custody instead of ICE custody, because wow. now you, you've received this charge. And so that's kind of why you are separated from your baby, because Marshall's doesn't allow women to have their children in their facilities, in the facilities that they oversee. So what did you learn from Dr. Shelley about how many instances she has witnessed uh, and the conditions under which she has seen newborns ripped away from their mothers and, and their mothers losing track of them? I mean, so Dr. Shelley said that this was akin to torture, um, that she has had women in her care that seemed suicidal, that she was afraid to release them from custody because she was afraid that they were going to harm themselves. Um, and then their babies also... were taken away from them, which yes, is the yes. most natural response that somebody yes. who's just had a baby would have if their mm -hmm. child was taken away from them. You would literally want, you would go mad. And, and Marshall's does seem particularly cruel. Um, mm -hmm. In one instance that we report on, um, there was a woman who was afraid, Dr. Shelley was afraid she was going to harm herself. And so she asked that the woman stay at the hospital for five more days or for five days total instead of the customary couple of days. And in that time, they were somehow able to track down a very distant relative who could take her newborn because it was going to be taken from her and placed into Texas uh, care. And mm. so U.S. Marshals wouldn't allow her to meet the relative that was going to take her baby. Um, wow. They don't allow guests. And so she couldn't meet the woman who was in the other room that was about to take over the care of her newborn baby. And so a nurse ran back and forth between the patient, the migrant in custody, and the woman who was going to take her baby and took photos of them and showed them and said, like, this is the person that's going to take your baby. They tried to help her memorize the name of the hospital and other details so that if anything happened, if she were deported, if she couldn't get her baby back, she understood that there were records and that, that she was the parent and that there was a legal way to prove that she was the mother. I'm assuming that your source, Dr. Shelley, is speaking to you about what she's witnessing because it is horrifying her. Yes, uh, I've been in touch with other doctors now since this reporting was published who are seeing equally troubling things. And it seems that some doctors don't understand how to push back because they feel intimidated by federal agencies in their hospitals. Um, Dr. Shelley described a couple of contentious interactions with marshals where it's almost like an argument that happens if you, if you ask that they don't shackle patients. Um, people seem very afraid to push back. Healthcare providers don't seem to understand the amount of power that they have in that situation where the migrant is essentially powerless. It doesn't matter if they say they don't want to be shackled doesn't matter if they, if it's dangerous to shackle them, Marshalls is going to shackle them. And so the only person that can stop that in that situation is the healthcare provider. And it seems that sometimes healthcare providers aren't doing that. This uh, story seems ripe for some form of legal action. What so far has been the response, uh, both from U.S. Marshals, I understand you got some comments from them, and from advocates who may not have been aware of what, of what was going on? I actually haven't heard from U.S. Marshals. <laughs> I don't oh. know. I don't. I don't know how they could uh, defend against this. It is. I mean, I was in touch with them for the entirety of this reporting. Lots of fact-checking questions. Lots of going back and forth and confirming information. Um, they. So they knew you were investigating this. Yes. Yes. And they now have a number of FOIAs from me, uh, as well. Um, Freedom and, of Information and, Act request. So you're trying to find yes. out more from them about what sets their policy. Yes, I'm hoping to find very specific information about the number of women that this has happened to, the number of pregnant women that marshals have in their custody. Those are numbers that they are very forthcoming with, and they actually outright told me, you're going to have to submit a FOIA for this. And so I did. Um, I, I hope that there's legal action. I know that an immigration attorney in Texas who does pro bono asylum work reached out to me, um, asked me to connect him with Dr. Shelley and other advocates in the area who are working with these women because it seemed that he did believe that there's definitely a space for a lawsuit here. 
Uh, and tell us about the the person that you spoke with at Annunciation House, which I understand is is a certified shelter in the air, Texas area. Yes. So Taylor Levy is a legal advocate there, and I I can't say enough about how crucial of a source she was. A lot of people reach out to me, but they don't want to be uh, forthcoming about any identifying information or where they work or anything like that. And Taylor Levy just kind of laid it all out and confirmed a lot of information for me, told me that she is personally, that was the other thing that came up is that initially Texas DFPS told me that this wasn't happening, that they had no place in this, that they had no records to confirm that they were taking newborns from migrants. Um, But I kept pushing based on information that Taylor Levy told me, which is that I have personally helped women get their newborns back from this agency. I know that it's happening. Um, And while they never outright confirmed, they certainly backpedaled and told me like, this is the legal process for how this happens when it does happen. But I don't have any numbers about how many times this has happened in the state of Texas. The um, story that you're talking about, of course, comes within a broader context of the Trump administration wanting to uh, continue detention of immigrants. Um, There's, I mentioned, a lawsuit uh, that uh, in Louisiana around a prolonged detention of legitimate asylum seekers, minors are being held in border patrol facilities for longer than the you know uh, maximum seventy two hours that they're required. Uh, you know they, they are not allowed to be um, kept in in prison for longer than that in these in these prison like conditions. And we've of course also heard of the disturbing stories of a number of uh, children that have died in. Uh, U.S. custody and Border Patrol custody, et cetera. As far as you know, why, or can you explain why this particular story of what the U.S. Marshals Service is doing has escaped scrutiny and gone under the radar? I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, and my my only assumption is that um, in all the reporting that's happening on immigration, marshals are referenced regularly. Sometimes if you it'll be a brief mention, right? Mm. So a lot of reporters who are doing reporting about immigration right now at the border, my only assumption is that they just became accustomed to seeing marshals everywhere. And when someone, when something like this is ubiquitous, you don't think to delve because it just seems so commonplace. And at rewire.news, I specifically try to focus on vulnerable populations that are affected by the immigration system. And so Um, When I learned that shackling was happening, I mean, that's how this story happened. It started with a story about shackling that I thought was happening in ICE custody. But when I realized it was marshals, um, I realized I haven't read a piece that just kind of outlined the marshals' role in what's happening in Texas and its role in carrying out zero tolerance. Um, It's been kind of doing it under the radar. And once we started peeling back Um, what we found was really unbelievable. And I hope that it leads to more reporting on the role of the U.S. Marshals and what's been happening to people in their custody. As far as you know, have the women involved, the pregnant uh, women involved and and or their babies suffered any um, physical harm? I mean, we've, of course, heard not just about the deaths, but very severe abuse in other facilities. We've heard of uh, sexual abuse in other facilities. You know, have you come across any stories that um, have left a sort of lasting injury or or even caused any deaths? Um, So I was able to confirm that this was happening with women who didn't want to go on the record at all, who did not want to share any information about what had happened to them. But I can tell you that the trauma is unreal. Um, and just because they're released doesn't mean that they're safe. You know, mm-hmm. So a lot of, well, one of the women that we referenced in our reporting had a very uh, troublesome experience in Marshall's custody, especially with her postpartum care. Um, she was denied medication that she really needed. She went into birth, uh, she went into labor early. She had a lot of pregnancy complications. Um, and she gave birth prematurely, which is another thing that I'm seeing a lot with women that I speak to. Um, a lot of complicated pregnancies and a lot of giving birth prematurely, whether that's directed to the um, There's a correlation between that and the care that they receive, I can't say for sure, but I know that this has been really, really traumatic for women. And just because they get released, it does not mean that they're safe in the United States. That's just kind of step one in their asylum case. They could still 
be deported and then they have to decide do you know because that's the other thing is that their baby is an american citizen it was born in the united states so if they're deported do they take their baby with them do they leave their baby behind for women who aren't reunited with their babies after being released from custody what happens to those children do they get adopted i mean some of the things that we looked into with this reporting is whether or not courts are questioning the paternal rights of migrants and and that could certainly be happening and we we wouldn't know so um, let's also specifically um, talk about what it is that the U.S. Marshals say that they do, the official line. I mean, they, they have some uh, rules in place and even public statements about the kinds of health care that they're allowed to provide or the standards they're allowed to provide, and even just really what their jurisdiction is. Because, you know, ICE has a clear mandate, Border Patrol has a clear mandate, federal um, you know, other federal officers, which these are, generally have a specific mandate. I mean, these are not, these are neither Border Patrol nor ICE, they're not Coast Guard. What exactly does U.S. US Marshals say they do? So they help carry out federal policy, which is the zero tolerance policy, certain, it falls under that, which is why they actually have a very large role in how this has been playing out with immigration in particular, which is another surprising reason. I mean, there's only a why. few thousand of them, right? There's, there's only, yes. what, th- three, f- 4,000, I think you say yes. in your piece, 4,000 U.S. Marshals mm-hmm. in the entire country? Yes. yes. And they do sort of oversee a large nationwide network um, of people in custody. Um, and it, it's, it's terribly complicated. And I know that there's a lot of unraveling to do still. I know that another reporter contacted me recently. Um, he's trying to sort out where they have jurisdiction, like basically what what is the nationwide network of facilities that they oversee? It's prisons, it's jails, it's detention centers. They contract with all of them um, and they get to sort of dictate care. Um, and so migrants in that in custody or people who are imprisoned under the marshals, it could be argued that they could be receiving the most negligent health care because then you have the really horrible standards that are already happening in prisons. And then on top of that, they're subjected to the really negligent healthcare standards that Marshall's sort of follows. And so you have um, for about 4,000 Marshall's total, and not clear if all of them are doing any immigration enforcement, but the number of immigrants that they are sort of on average in charge of is on the order of about 20,000? Yes. Yes, and cut that, those are the number that, that's the latest number that we have for the number of migrants that they currently have in custody. I imagine there, sh- there would need to be some sort of congressional oversight over these kinds of um, confusing and vague and now we know very dangerous um, treatment and, and, and the role that the U.S. Marshal Service is playing on this, right? Because if, if all of this, if we, if we look back on the family separations issue, um, and see how haphazardly it was carried out, sort of purposeful negligence, if you will. Um, that attitude, I imagine, carries over in all aspects regarding the current immigration system under this current administration, under President Trump, um, who are sort of pushing the limit of every law they can and um, operating, it seems, with impunity and without the requisite oversight. Would you uh, hope that from your investigative report you have some sort of, con- not just lawsuit, as we were mentioning earlier, but even congressional oversight? I mean, there should be hearings into what's happening. I certainly hope so, because there's there was only so much that we could confirm through our reporting, and we're still digging and we're still hoping to speak to other people that this has impacted, other healthcare providers who are seeing this play out in their hospitals. Um, but I'm I'm really concerned about what we don't know. I'm really concerned about how long this has been going on. And I am especially concerned for the number of women who may never see their newborns again. Wow. So um, we, what is your next um, step after this? You said you uh, submitted a number of FOIA requests and you're waiting to hear back from that for some follow-up pieces on this story? Yes, I, I'm hoping to learn more about specifically the population of pregnant women that have been in Marshall's custody, the number of women who've given birth in Marshall's custody, the outcome of that, whether those women were able to reunite with their children. Um, and I'm also speaking to healthcare providers um, who are having to navigate their own 
really uncomfortable, horrible interactions with federal immigration agencies at their hospitals. I imagine that there's some trauma amongst them as well, and they could stand to have some legal uh, advice. And the hospitals that they work in, I imagine, ought to um, obtain some sort of legal counsel as to how they, they can interact with U.S. Marshal Service. But it seems like we're operating in some sort of wild west these days. Um, Tina, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Rewired.news is the best place for people to find your writings, right? Yes, yes. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We'll uh, post a link to your pieces from our website as well. Thanks so much, Tina. Thank you. Tina Vasquez is the immigration reporter at Rewire.news. We've been discussing her series of investigative pieces on the treatment of pregnant migrants in custody of the U.S. Marshal Service. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingup.sonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Get Some. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH, Philomath on 